Well, hi again, everyone, and welcome to Talk Sports, our adventures in the art of lively conversation. Gary Zabinski, your host here, alongside one of the liveliest conversationalists that I know. In fact, if you Google lively conversation, a picture of him comes up on the web search. My good friend Roscoe. Good day, sir. How are you ready uh, now for an adventure? Good day. I say good day, Gary. Good day. Good day to you. Well, when did you become so eloquent? I don't know. You know, I had a hairdresser the other day who... um, Could have fooled me. (laughs) It looks nice. I spent more than $12 for this haircut. For some reason, he couldn't find my name, and it came up as Roscoe. Well, that is my name. It is your name. It is my name. He said, if my name was Roscoe, I would always go as Roscoe. I would always tell people my name was Roscoe. As, as we do. As we do on this show. And I'm going to do that throughout the rest of my life now. Well, are you ready to be adventurous and lively? I hope so. Well, fan- such, we must rise to the occasion. Well, fantastic. I want to start with something brand new that I've coined. And we need to hearken back to our last podcast where uh, I mentioned that I have had a long-running, not necessarily a crush, but uh, infatuation with Carlton S. Fiorina, known as Carly Fiorina, now that she's running for the GOP. Well, I want to do a new segment here. It's just a short one, and I've uh, coined a a phrase for it. You let me know if you care for it. Keys to the Carly. Keys to the Carly? (laughs) Like keys to the kingdom? Exactly, or keys Keys to the the car. Indeed. I'd like to visit just briefly what Carly Fiorina has said this week oh, in her campaign. This might be a short-lived segment. Yeah, she was talking about the world's problems, and her favorite phrase is, it's easy, it's not rocket science to solve the world's problems. Did you hear what her latest thing is? No. So what she would do is she would pose a question out there to the entire American public, all 350 million of them, <laughs> and then you would get a phone number, and you would call in, and you would vote, and you would vote one for no and press two for yes. Press one for no, press two for yes. This is her latest leadership idea. That's fantastic. I mean, if we ran the government that way, women would still not have the right to vote. We'd probably still have slaves. Well, and she's still running on this supposed success of her HP career, which mm. she you know, fired 30,000 people and drove that company into the ground. But so that was my uh, uh, keys to the Carly quote. Keys to the Carly. I like that. Thank you very, very much. I I also want to mention, and I try to do this at the top of almost every show. uh, Did you hear about the uh, swimmer who tried to swim from San Francisco to the, uh, the Farallon Islands, which is about 28 miles out into the ocean? Might this have something to do with sharks? Simon Dominguez, a marathon swimmer who was forced to abandon his quest to become the first to swim the 28 miles from San Francisco to the Farallon Islands when his support staff spotted a great white shark circling him. It was hard to quit, a disappointed Dominguez said, but a shark is a shark. Fantastic. (laughs) Now, listen, we've had a cultural experience just recently that I want to touch on, and you're going to have to expound on this a little bit more than I can because I was actually working as a stage crew person on this event. The Grammy Award-winning jazz singer Kurt Elling appeared at the Grand Park Music Festival in an evening with Kurt Elling, and yes. you were out there on the lawn, and you're a, a big fan. I, yes, I was, I was on the lawn with about 10,000 people. And it was one. It was a spectacular night. What's the producer? Fourteen thousand. 
12,000? 12,000. More than 10, anyway. 12,000 12,000. Yeah, with, between the seating bowl and the lawn. It was that huge. has to be thrilling, to be on stage and have 12,000 people show up to see you. I, I can't imagine. I stood on stage, as I mentioned, I was working the stage crew for that show, and I stood on stage right before the show started, and I looked out at the vast sea of people. It was a beautiful evening, wasn't it? It was stunning. And it was incredible. I, I couldn't imagine even grabbing a microphone and then trying to sing for all of those folks. What did you think of the show? I thought it was great. And I we did something in and I we every time we talk about Millennium Park, I, I feel like I cover the same ground, but it's so unbelievable. This this was the ugliest part of Chicago, this horrible area with these ugly train tracks. And through some great vision and lots of money from Cindy Pritzker, they built this the, the most beautiful park in America. Let's just say it's the most beautiful park in America. Let's say. But but they, they turned a, a sow into a silk purse. And that's probably the number one tourist destination for Chicago, one of them. I think in the summer, during the concert season, it may yes. be the number one attraction when the weather is nice. Yeah. Uh, you know, throughout the year, more people go to Navy Pier, of course, in a 12-month right. period. But in the three to four months that we have this brief expanse of summer, if they can call it summer, it's about 42 degrees outside right now, and it's the middle of August, uh, I would <laughs> think that, that the, the, the Pritzker and Millennium Park are the number one tourist destination with the bean and the, the museum pieces and uh, the sculpture gardens and the free dance programs, free Grand Park Music Symphony programs, free jazz programs, free, free everything, essentially. Free, free everything, except they, they roped off the whole facility of a couple of weeks ago for Idina Menzel. That was last weekend. That was last weekend. Yeah, that was a private commercial, not private, but it was a commercial um, presentation by Live Nation. They brought Idina Menzel. Why that venue? I don't know. And the tickets were phenomenally expensive. Were they? I never I looked like $300 for prime seating. And don't they rope it off so that even if you wanted to maybe just sit and hear the concert, you're... You're kept 300 yards away so that you can't hear it. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> $300. Did that come with any sort of special services? Oh, it should You know what I'm saying? Yes, you know what I'm yes, saying? Yes, I know. Wow. But we can't talk about that on the air, or we'll have to get an explicit rating on our um, site on um, all those tunes. iTunes. <laughs> All those, all, tunes. all those tunes. But uh, let You're, me tell you. You are so hip. You, I am so hip. You are the hippest. Let, let me tell you my circumstance of going to the Kurt Allian concert, where I work, we have uh, an organization that we work with who happened to be in town for a two-day meeting, and we always, always go out for dinner the night, that, the, the, after, you know, the first night that they're here, the one night that they're here. So the fool, like Kurt Elling, who I know, is singing in Grant Park. I've looked forward to it all summer, and I have to go out to dinner with these people, who I've had dinner with 20 times, and they're perfectly nice people. So I said, hey, you know what? Instead of going out for dinner, let's have a picnic in the park. And it was the greatest idea I could have come up with. They were from New York City. They were thrilled. There's nothing like this in New York. She said there are things in the parks in New York, but if you go, uh, there's, there's 20,000 people shoved into a city block, so it's always a miserable experience. Mm -hmm. It was a lovely evening. Kurt was in great voice. The audience was enraptured. They were, he had them in the palm of his hand. And, you know, he is, he's a cool cat. He didn't seem to have a nervous bone in his body. He strutted no, he out, didn't, did he? Yeah. Strutted out there like he owned the place. 
has a four octave voice. It didn't fail him. Well, why would you say it would fail him? But he he was on the whole night, and it was a terrific concert and just a beautiful evening and thrilling, thrilling, thrilling. Well, can I tell you something? Yeah. I've managed to speak to Kurt because I was working the concert backstage that night, and yeah. I, I spoke with him directly and, and rather personally, and I asked him if he would deign to be a guest on our podcast show. And you know what he said? I'd love to. We're going to have Kurt Elling on. Well, that's time. fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Going to have Kurt Elling, uh, Grammy Award winner on our show very, very soon, hopefully the next podcast that we do. You, in fact, may or may not be here. I know that you've got your Cinecon Film Festival going on in California, which you've attended low these many past 51 years. Yes, I think this is my 20th year. And I believe this is their 51st year. Cinecon, the Cinecon Festival uh, 51. Cinecon 51. And this is why I go to this festival. The point of the festival is to see movies on the big screen that you would never see on the big screen or movies that you might not ever see, period. So this happens every year. I look up the schedule. These movies don't mean anything to me and I'm disappointed. Then I start doing research and and they do clever, funny things with the programming. The first night, all of the films are Westerns, which is not a genre I'm particularly interested in until I read that the first Western is Douglas Fairbanks' third movie, I think, called Wild and Wooly. Wild and Wooly. Wild and Wooly, and it's about the only Western he made. There's another Western on right before Wild and Wooly called, and this is my favorite title of the entire Cinecon. I I looked up the schedule. Oh, oh, you did too. (laughs) Two-Fisted. Two-Fisted. That's an awesome title. Only 60 minutes long from 1935 with Lee Tracy and Gail Patrick. Yeah, and you know Lee Tracy. I, I don't know who Lee Tracy Lee is. Lee Tracy's the guy who always talks like this, and he's the wisecracking reporter, and he's always about the fourth build in Warner Brothers movies, and this is one of the few starring roles that he had. And this is a movie that we've never seen, because when these movies were sold to television, Lee Tracy wasn't a star. When you sold, sold your library to TV, you sold movies with you know Hepburn and Spencer Tracy that people wanted to see. So we just see Lee Tracy in a starring role. Let me ask you a question about these movies. I noticed that the running times on them are anywhere between like 60 minutes and 75 minutes. Were they just, are those, is that technically a two-reeler? No, no, no. A, or, reel, a reel is 10, in, 10 minutes. 10 minutes. 10 minutes. So uh, uh, five reel movies, 50 minutes, six reels. And, and this was standard, you know, for the 20s really? and 30s, most movies were... An hour, just over an hour long. Hmm. Uh, there were some exceptions to that. You know, when Gone with the Wind was four hours long, people thought that was crazy, and they actually previewed it. And the uh, preview audience, preview audiences, all said, "Don't, don't cut a frame of this movie." But it was very unusual to even have a two-hour movie back then. I noticed that the second day they're showing an Eric von Stroheim movie that has rarely been seen from 1919. Now, this is a 90-minute film called Blind Husbands. Blind Husbands. Another one of my favorite titles on the schedule. What I'm excited about, and I'm going to get into the cleverness of the programming, they're showing Call of the Wild, Jack Mulhall. Jack Mulhall has recently become a Cinecon favorite because he's a very appealing actor who was in movies in the 20s, and his career just kind of waned, and he was just sort of forgotten. He has a, he has a sad personal story. He was, 
He was greatly in love with his wife, and they were swimming in the Pacific Ocean, and she got pulled away by a riptide and drowned, and he never got over it and, and became very reclusive and sad over this. So that's my sad, morose Roscoe Donner. They're showing... And is that a I, silent movie, by the way? Call, that Call of the Wild? Is it yeah, silent? It's 1923, yes. Anything before 1929, you can assume, is a silent movie. Okay. And I, it's a Jack London, of course. And I think there's... Jack London sold many of his films to the movies. Books to the movies. Books to the movies. But I, I may be making this up, and we can do a corrective later. I think Jack London did clever things when he sold his books to the movies. And the rights were short-lived. I'll sell this, the, the, you the rights to this movie, but they're only good for 10 years. And after 10 years, you have to renew them. So, this, so what continually happened is 10 years would go by, and they, by 10 years, it was 1933. No one remembered who Jack Mulhall was. No one's going to release a silent movie in the boom of talking movies. So I tried to look up something about this movie. There's nothing. This is a movie that no one has seen. Nothing. It, it, There's it, nothing? You can't find... I can't find anything about it. In this day and age, you can find nothing about that movie. Which means it just hasn't been shown. It hasn't mm. been shown. It hasn't been studied. It hasn't been available. Mm. But here's, here's something very clever that they're doing that I think is cute. And this, here's another reason that we, I go to this. Uh, they're showing uh, Daredevil Jack. Did you read about this? I have not. Well, the movie only exists in fragments. So this is a reason it's not shown. But it was one of the, uh, maybe the only movie that starred Jack Dempsey. The Fighter? The Fighter. Now, this is a short film, right? From 1920 or something? No, it was a feature film, but only 20 minutes of it exists. Hmm. So this is what they're doing that I think is very clever. They're showing blind husbands, as you said, right? Yes. Then two days later, they're showing Blind Wives, which stars Estelle Taylor. And do you know why that's interesting? I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. Estelle Taylor was Mrs. Jack Dempsey. No. Yes. Well, isn't that clever of the Cinecon people? Very clever. Blind Wives. Another movie that they're showing is Mert and Marge. Mert and Marge was a long-running radio series that ran from the early 30s into the 40s. It had a character on the radio show who was obviously gay. And I think it was an interior decorator or hairdresser, something cliched. Was that Mert or Marge? It, neither, neither. It was, it was, Somebody's they're a completely couple. different. Mm-hmm. But uh, flagrantly gay. And, and, of course, the censorship hadn't kicked in yet, so you could get away with having a gay character. Well, because he already existed, he just he, he remained in the, in the... Apparently, it didn't cause a commotion as the, the, when the censorship kicked in. They just let him stay. Mert and Marge is a film that often shows up in the history books as being unusual for having a gay character. But again, it's a movie that no one's seen. So this is a rare chance to see this movie. So this is one of the reasons I I go to this film festival, because sometimes these movies aren't good. They're not great movies, but it's the only chance I'll ever have to see them. It looks like the Three Stooges are also in this Merton Marge movie, along with Ted Healy as Ted the Healy. star. Ted Healy, who was, you know, they were originally Ted Healy's Three Stooges. But someone else explained to me that they were not yet then the Three Stooges. They were uh, just the three actors. Ah. Uh, what are they, Mo, Larry, and Curly? There, there's a movie called Laughing at Trouble, which stars Jane Darwell. This is how you would know Jane Darwell. She's the woman who's, who sings, Feed the birds, tuppence a bag, in Mary Poppins. The little 
breadcrumb woman. Breadcrumb woman. And uh, 20 years before that, she won the Academy Award for playing Ma Jode in The Grapes of Wrath. Of course she did, yes. So this is a movie in which she stars, and she is keeping a fugitive in her house who's been uh, convicted of a crime. He's wanted for murder, and she knows that he's innocent. And this is a movie that was so, it was barely even seen when it was first released. So again, rare, 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 rare. May I jump ahead a little bit yes, on you? Yes, you may. The highlight of what I think is their Sunday, uh, and it's, it's a four-day festival where they show films all day long, starting at about nine in the morning, and you can just sit through them all the way till 11 or 12 at night. Mm-hmm. In the middle of Sunday afternoon, they're showing a new premiere restoration of a film called The Roundup, starring... Roscoe Arbuckle. Roscoe Arbuckle, uh, also known as Fatty Arbuckle. Yes. And someone that we've uh, referred to before as maybe like your namesake, but I can't be sure that he really is. Plus a couple of other restored versions of the uh, uh, Keaton Arbuckle shorts, The Bellboy and The Garage with newly discovered footage. Now that sounds absolutely thrilling. This is astonishing. Keaton learned about how to make films by working with Fatty Arbuckle. And when Fatty Arbuckle's career died and he was mired in scandal, Keaton gave him money and helped him and tried to find jobs for him. All of Keaton's films miraculously exist. The fact that in 2015, they're still able to find missing footage and put these films back together is astonishing. astonishing. Yeah, so that will be thrilling. And uh, one final highlight, and this is, again, another film that I can't find anything about, and probably some cineast somewhere is living, listening to this and going, oh, that buffoon. <laughs> Certainly he should know more if he's going to go on the air and opine about these things. Uh, they're showing a movie called The Deadlier Sex, 1920, with Blanche Sweet. And again, this is a film that, if you, if you look it up, they say there's a print, a print is held by the Museum of Modern Art, but no one has seen this movie. So, yet again, this will be a movie I can see that will go back into the vaults. Up to what year, approximately, does Cinecon show films? Uh, obviously, as early as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but up to what point in the 30s or 40s or maybe even 50s do they show they, a film? They've even gone into the 60s. Really? And, and that's usually to accommodate a guest star or performer who they're saluting. Now, sadly, as I talked about before... The festival was started to invite silent stars back who, would, who were long forgotten, show a movie in front of theirs in front of an appreciative audience, make them feel like a movie star all over again. So when I first started going, there were still some silent films, People Alive, Baby Peggy, who we must talk about on every broadcast, is <laughs> actually still alive. I'm reading her book right now. Are you? Yeah. And are you liking it? Very, very much. One of these films is from 1920, and a, a child in it is called Frank Jr. Coughlin. He actually was still alive and came the first few years that I went. So I'm you know, hobnobbing with someone who's in a movie in 1920. Uh, oh, I can't think of her name. She played Joan Crawford's daughter when Joan Crawford's the axe murderer. She's in Silence of the Lambs. She plays the senator. And she was a nominal star in the 60s. She was at Cinecon one year. So they showed a film that she had made in the 60s, which wasn't a great film, but she was... Trying this, this is the caliber of the audience that comes there. She was trying to think of the name of, of the famous makeup man who did her makeup for a movie, and she's going, 
oh, oh, what was his name? And 500 people went, Frank Tuttle. And she goes, yes, yes, you're right, it was Frank Tuttle. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for instance, would they ever show something from the late 50s, early 60s, like a Gene Seberg film? Would they show something of that caliber? Only if a guest was there. Well, she from, from that film. So, so a few years there. ago, Shirley Jones was there. So rather than showing The Music Man, they showed a fairly obscure movie that she had made in the 50s with, with Pat Boone that I'd never heard of, but they got the studio to strike a brand new Technicolor print in stereo, and Pat Boone came to the screening. Amazing. And one of the funny things in the film was he, you know, he's very Christian and very conservative, and he was very young in the movie, but he was already married and had children in his early 20s. So it's a romantic comedy with him and Shirley Jones in which he never kisses her because he thought it was wrong to kiss a woman that he wasn't married to. So he made a big show of kissing her in front of us so that he would finally kiss Shirley Jones for the first time. And did did people hoot and holler and scream and applaud? Yeah, it was cute. I'm sure. Are you looking forward to this year? I am looking forward to it. And and, and as, as one of my friends also said, part of it is... It's really interesting to see these films. They're not all great. Interesting things happen. A man will show up to introduce a movie, and he'll say, you know, this movie stars my mother, and I've never seen this movie. So I thought I'd come today to see the movie. And by the way, my mother is Loretta Young. It's because it's in Hollywood. But part of it is my friend Matt McDonald says, it's a mind wash. For five days, the world goes away, and you sit in a balcony, and you watch movies, and it's, it's like going to a spa or something, because you the, you, the outside world goes away, and you're just living this fantasy land of movies on the giant screen and a beautiful setting you know, with perfect projection, perfect acoustics, the technically perfect, and they're all 35-millimeter prints, which are harder and harder to find. You know, 35-millimeter prints don't play movie houses anymore. It's all digital. How many of these, what, 40 or so films will you actually see some on year, average? Some, some years I can see 38 out of 40. I have become more resilient as the years have gone by where I've been able to actually sit and watch movies for 15 hours straight. Well, I, I look forward to hearing your follow-up analysis okay. of Cinecon when you come back later in uh, later next month. I've marked these films a bit, okay. and I want to know exactly what you thought about them. Another one that I'm interested in, besides Two Fisted, is the the studio murder mystery with Neil Hamilton and Doris Hill. I believe I think that Frederick Marsh is also in that yes. film as an as a supporting actor. And uh, The Adventures of Tarzan, The Hidden Arrows, with Elmo Lincoln. Elmo Lincoln. One of the great early Tarzans. So uh, come back with your impressions right. on that. Hey, and I, wanted, I wanted to diverge a little bit and mention something. We had been uh, offering a $100 gift certificate to one of our favorite restaurants, Acanto, yes. uh, recently. And we promised that we would do a drawing uh, of people who signed up for our aid list on our website. Right. And that happened. And yes. we did the drawing. Our producer did that. And I'm happy to announce the winner of the $100 gift certificate is Dan Michelle. 
Dan Michelle, congratulations, Dan. Thank you for signing up. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a fan. Please tell your friends. Let's talk a little bit about Broadway. Not a lot happening in the summertime, but a couple of things have now uh, closed, as they do in the doldrum months of July, August, early September. I'm going to New York in a couple of weeks. And I, I'm, I'm trying to fudge the dates so I can get there as late in September as possible. Get there as late as you can. Because nothing really starts until the end of September. We also must talk about her incessantly, Cicely Tyson and James Earl Jones. The gin game. In the gin game, which will be thrilling. And Jennifer Hudson is doing a remount of The Color Purple. Yes, and Audrey McDonald is doing a version of an early all-black musical that was uh, groundbreaking in its time. That's going to be in previews very, very soon. I think that with the creative team that's involved and the cast that's working on it, I think it's going to be very classy and very cool. Mm-hmm. Now, we're, we're approaching a new season of Broadway, and in the next couple of months, there'll be just a slew of reviews and notices and criticisms. There's a general trend in the commercial theater these days, however, especially when we're talking about New York. You know, you know when I was growing up and, and working um, in New York um, and doing Broadway shows, certainly there were a couple of key reviews that you absolutely positively had to get in order for your show to have a chance to run. One of those, of course, was always the New York Times. Whether it be Frank Rich or someone before that or someone after that, or Ben Brantley or whoever. Um, There was something, however, recently that uh, I think we both read about reviews no longer really mattering. Is that is that something that you've noticed uh, as a general trend? Well, yeah, it's something that's been written about is that you had to get a good review from the New York Times to run. Now the New York Times can give a show a rave review and people still don't go. On the Town, an example, the Sideshow Revival got the greatest reviews in the world and they couldn't they couldn't give seats away. And what what do you think it takes now? Do you think it takes a star name? Do you think it takes a Hollywood name? Do you uh, I think it's both. I think it has, you know, stars, Bradley Cooper and the Elephant Man will always sell out. Straight plays often hire famous actors in order to sell tickets. But someone wrote on the Bible of show business for me, all that chat. It's not 1975 anymore. There are lots of different places to read about shows. So the New York Times has lost its cachet as being the only place to learn about a show. There's many, many outlets and many people review shows. And everyone goes to a show and gets online and talks about it. So they've, they've lost their, their, a little bit of their niche and their power. Hmm. Do you think that's true about Chicago theater as well? We have a lot more, obviously off-loop type, regional kind of off-off-Broadway. Do you think that it's still, that, that, that there's still a couple of reviews I, that you I'm have I'm sure get? it helps because the, the Tribune's about 24 pages long right now. It, it used to be 104 pages a day. So if Chris Jones writes a review in the Tribune, it stands out. Uh, because it's it's taking a, a larger percentage of the paper than well, it used you, to. We notice it. <clears throat> we go to things that we read good things about, right. especially if they're very small off loop off off loop mm. theaters that we don't that really aren't on the radar of yeah. advertising. But so, but sometimes I find that I really have to I have to do some research to figure out what's running and if it's worth going to. 
because I no longer can open the Tribune and read all their mini, mini reviews, or I can't open the, the Chicago Reader. I wanted to talk about this the other day. Once upon a time, the Chicago Reader weighed about five pounds, and every Thursday night, you could wait, I, I couldn't wait for the Reader to come out. Be a section of classifieds, a section on music, a front section. They would review every play. There would be many reviews of every play running. So you could sit down with this one edition and see what was happening. Now the reader barely exists, and maybe we'll cover a few shows that have just opened and a few that are still running that you might want to see. And you know, there's this whole world of digital marketing and mm. digital communication now, mm -hmm. which I don't quite understand. I don't know how to access it. Chicago theater sure does well. I mean, you know, the the boy from Oz is playing at the um, 773 Theater. It's playing for um, just about six weeks. It's a really short run. And David Zach, who we mention every other podcast, tweeted a picture uh, that he took of the audience. He said, it's a Wednesday night in August and The Boy From Oz is sold out. Mm -hmm. So somehow people are finding out about these shows. Well, they are. I think that the mainstream press is becoming less and less significant mm -hmm. and that there's a million ways to find out about what's playing. And there's a million... Reviews. You and I on this program, we talk about things that we've gone to, hoping that our listeners will at least get some knowledge about something they may be considering going to or something they haven't even considered, and we'll decide, oh, that sounded really interesting. I think we'll go to that. We try to be as promotional about those things as possible, but we're also quite uh, you know, descriptive about our right. experience at them. So there are places to go. And here's another example. The... Uh Peter Pan show, Neverland, on Broadway. Yeah. Terrible reviews, no Tony Awards, doing land office business. Yeah. Because people want to see a show about Peter Pan, and they want to see the guy with the curly hair that was on Glee. Well, it has Harvey Weinstein behind it, too, and he's you know, a genius at marketing. So they've kind of figured out where their audience is and who they're going to, in fact try to sell For God's to. God's sakes, don't, don't badmouth Harvey Weinstein. I, show. I, I want to live. I, I wouldn't in a million right. years. I may not want to work for the guy, but that doesn't yeah. seem actually very yeah. likely at this point. Can I throw something in? You may. I, this is interesting. We brought up both of these people. I'm in California next week, and the one of my free nights at the Hollywood Bowl is the oddest double feature in the world. The first act is Audra McDonald which will be thrilling. Great. Audrey McDonald, The Great American Songbook. With the Los Angeles Philharmonic or something, or is Prop, she just doing her thing? I, I think so. So she's only on for the first act. What? It, it's, she's one act. She's a headliner. She's a headliner. So she opens the show, and the second act is Plain and Fancy, the ballet, upon which On the Town is based. No, yeah. no. Yeah. Now, the ludicrousness of this is if you've been to the Hollywood Bowl, it holds 18,000 people. Wait, it's, are you saying plain and fancy, or do you mean fancy free? Oh, I meant fancy free. Plain and fancy is at Amish, Amish Musical. Musical <laughs> in Menominee, Indiana, that we, we never went to. Right. <laughs> I'm Written by the guy who wrote Fiddler on the Roof, yes, right? Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. yes. So fancy free, which, fancy free, which the Grand Park Music Festival Orchestra played this year, right. as a matter of fact. Right. Early but can in the you season. imagine going to a ballet at the Hollywood Bowl? Even if you sit in, in the $500 seats, you're still a mile from the stage. I don't understand this lineup. What 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 is the what's what, what, what how much sense does it make for Audra McDonald to open for Fancy Free? What what does that I, mean? 
it's the oddest booking in the world. It'd be like, let, let's... Is there a name for this program? Let's like, have Patty Lupone do the first act and then bring in trapeze acts for the second act. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What, what could we'll, be, do, we'll do Justin Bieber and then Moby Dick. I, I can't quite understand the angle here or the I, hook. I, I, Are you sure you have this right? Perhaps we'll look this up and if we have to do some retakes, we will. Or we'd have assistants to do that. <laughs> Interns. If I had the technological savvy to be talking and doing something else at the same right. time. I thought we might try something that I'm going to actually maybe incorporate them with some guests. Um, w- there's, a, there's a game, a, a little word game, a parlor game called uh, Chat Pack, where you draw cards and then you sort of answer the questions about what's on them. And I thought maybe you and I would take a chance on oh, one, or, right. one or two of these and see what, what we can come up with. Our producer has chosen these specifically to prompt some sort of conversation. So I'm just going to hold these out and fan these out to you, and then you can just choose the one you want and then just read it off, and we'll both go through our... We'll both go through what we think are our answers on these. All right. Now, what kind of question did you pull so out of the pack do, do I have to answer this, or are you going to answer Why it? Why don't you go ahead and read it, and then I can answer it first, and then you can answer as best you can. If you could have any book instantly memorized, cover to cover, which book would you choose? Understand that no one's going to hold you to your answer. It could be different 10 minutes from now or tomorrow. I'm going to say my book would be A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving. One of my favorite books of all time. And if I could quote from that, uh, I I think I'd be a happier person. Well, I've had that book on my shelf since it came out and I haven't read it. Wonderful, wonderful book. Don't watch the movie, which is called Simon Birch, by the way. Don't watch it, but... Well, I've, I've, my immediate thought was what book would I memorize cover to cover? I was going to say, look homeward angel, just to be insufferable. (laughs) 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 And and you know that the, uh, later, the, the more recently, the last few years, the longer unedited version of look homeward angel came out. It, It was, it was his original manuscript which 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 was significantly cut down. I think this book is twelve hundred pages long, and there's a sequence that's seventy five pages long, of the young hero and his brother standing by the road, watching the troops, the exhausted Union Confederate soldiers marching home from Gettysburg. Seventy five. Seventy five pages. Uh, I would say Confederacy of Dunces. Good. Because answer. that is, that is a book that makes me howl with laughter mm-hmm. uncontrollably. And if I could memorize that book, I, and it, it, I'm laying in bed at night having a rough night and I could think of some of the crazy things that, um, <laughs> what is his name? Uh, Chester A. Arthur. Ig- Ignatius, Ignatius J. J. Riley. Riley. Yeah, some of the crazy stuff that he comes up with. <laughs> that's an excellent one, uh, That's a great question. Uh, would you like to try another one of these? Yes. All right, uh, fan these out for you. Ha, um... <laughs> this ha, is, This is rich. If you won a contest in which your prize was to select any three guests to appear in a popular late-night talk show, which three people would you choose? What an interesting question. I would say then, if they, if they don't have to be alive, if they could just be historical people, I would say Clarence Darrow, Stephen King, 
and Mozart. Wow. Stephen King's a very interesting man. Is he? Yeah, very interesting, and I think that he and Clarence would have a lot to chat about. I would say Abraham Lincoln, Emily Dickinson, and Pearl Bailey. (laughs) Now there's a musical. (laughs) There's a musical. I think it would have. I, you know who? I, you know, I'm I'm terribly upset about this. Jimmy Carter. Oh, yeah, I. You know, Jimmy sad. Carter. I did not want to be elected president. He uh, was president during my the last couple of years I was in college, and he would give crazy speeches. Everybody giving a speech about how we thought the country was depressed, and he tried to cheer us up. And I thought this is the most cockamamie speech I've ever heard in my life. But you know, he has been an unimpeachable good man who has cared about uh, the world in which we live and the downtrodden and helping others. He he always was. He always was. But he's become a beloved elder statesman Mm -hmm. of this country, I think, on both sides of the aisle, Mm -hmm. whether you agree with his politics or his policies or whatnot. But he's done nothing but tremendous things for the world population, not just in America. Right. We, we could do this. We always talk about field trips we're going to take. He's still teaching Bible school, and 700 people... I'm going to need a little choked up. Oh. 700 people showed up to his Bible school. I saw class. that photograph. We, we could drive to Georgia and go to a planes. Bible We could drive with planes. I, I remember that the rest of my life. Uh, I, I'm there. All right. When, when you come back from Seneca. That would be a fantastic field trip. I have one more I'd All like right. to do. Let's let's try one more. In fact, why don't maybe I'll just pick this one. Should All I right. pick one? Yeah, you can pick one. All right, I'm going to pick one out. Here we go. This one's for you. What is your favorite saying or quotation? We must be careful what we say. No bird resumes its egg. It's a line from Emily Dickinson, and it means that once... Oh, once is, this, is this on? Did we just get some, some, something beamed at us from, from outer space? Did you I, actually just say that? It's the first thing I thought of. It's an Emily Dickinson line, and it means be, care, you know, be careful what you say, because it's like laying an egg. And once you lay that egg, you can't you suck can't it. You can't stuff it back into the egg. You can't stuff it back in. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Mine would be... And I'm going to give it to you in Latin. Mine would be nunquam adepto ex navis, which means never get out of the boat. <laughs> <laughs> with, with all recognition and acknowledgement to Apocalypse Now, which is where I got that line from, I think it applies to so many situations. We have used Never that. Never get out of the boat. We have used that a million times yeah. in our lives. I, I, well, that was fun. I think we should incorporate this with our guests this, in the future. Yes, that would be perfect. And have them do three or four questions. I, I, I want to move on to something here that it's not really officially our Kiss of Death segment. Yvonne Craig passed away this week. Yeah. Yvonne Craig, Batgirl from the 1960s, uh, died at 78, originated the role as the high-kicking crime fighter Batgirl on the iconic 60s ABC show, and uh, she was a former ballerina. But uh, she landed this role, and she became pretty much a, a overnight sensation. She was born in Taylorville, Illinois, which is just south 
east of Springfield, real corn country. I bring her up because her film resume includes the Gene Krupa story in 1959, John Sturgis's By Love Possessed in 1961, Women from Hell from 1961, also also co-starring with future Joker Cesar Romero. How about that for a coincidence? And she starred in another movie in 1965. Do you know what that was, Roscoe? The Sound of Music. Ski Party. Ski Party. Oh, my God. It all comes back it to Ski Party. It all comes back. In our second episode, we talked I about like Ski Party. sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. Sing it, Leslie. Everywhere. It's wonderful. It's sure to come your way. I was hoping that we could save that for the Kurt Elling broadcast. Uh, I'm happy to hear you sing it. Maybe yes, get we, Kurt Elling to we, sing. we profiled uh, A Kiss of Death of Leslie Gore, who did a number as herself in Ski Party, which was a sequel to Beach Party, um, but took place as they're taking a bus and going up to the high Sierras or Lake Tahoe to ski. Yes. And uh, Yvonne Craig in Ski Party. You see how it all comes full circle? It all, this is our I, 14th I, podcast. I can, I'm going to full circle something else for you. I, a couple of years at Cinecon, I ended up sitting next to an actress named Colleen Gray. And Colleen Gray was a very minor actress but she's John Wayne's wife in Red River, mm. a, a very small role. And she was in a Frank Capra movie. And her career sort of did a downturn. And by the, by the end of her career, she was uh, started Leech Woman. <laughs> and did you say Bleach Woman? Leech Woman. Oh, leech. <laughs> and I think she was, one of the conceits was, you know, she was 900 years old and had some kind of poison in her ring and would poison people and drink their blood and that's how they lived and that's how she lived and she ended up uh, she got involved with Charles Coulson the convicted Watergate figure who later became an evangelist and she did a lot of work doing uh, evangelical work with prisoners and going to prisoners visit with prisoners in California to teach them about the gospel and I was nervous sitting next to her and I didn't know what to talk about so I told her my favorite Rex Harrison stories well, that Rex Harrison story leads me into our kiss of death, oddly ah, enough. It all ties together. Yes. Um, I found this uh, notice of death, and it has some very personal significance to me. I knew this gentleman, maybe the wow. first one so far that I've actually known personally. Oh. He uh, was known to me from my uh, early days working in New York on Broadway during the 80s. Uh, at that point, uh, he was a an agent for William Morris and represented quite a number of the larger stars of, of the era, mostly during the 60s and 70s, but he was still around. Uh, so I'm just going to read this. Uh, bear with me, and uh, uh, I'm sure you'll have some comments throughout. Mm. Samuel Biffliff, 96, Broadway manager and agent, dies. He was a who's who of showbiz. When My Fair Lady opened on Broadway, there's the Rex Harrison wow. reference in 1956, there was Alan J. Lerner's book, and there was Biff Liff's book. Mr. Liff's book, The Log He Kept as the Production Stage Manager, swelled to several volumes over the show, show's long run, and the entries were not just about each performance. Rex insisted on shower in his dressing room, Mr. Liff wrote in one entry, referring to Rex Harrison, quote, 
never uses it. In another entry, Mr. Liff wrote, quote, pickpocket Julie Andrews clipped my tie clip while talking to me, returned it after the performance. This girl has a future. (laughs) I should mention that most of my career was spent being a stage manager and production stage manager uh, on Broadway and on national tours. So uh, I follow a long, long line of people like Biff Liff, And when Mr. Harrison left the cast in 1957, Mr. Liff declared, quote, Harrison never did use that shower. Mr. Liff, whose given name was Samuel and who died on Monday at his home in Yorktown Heights, New York, at 96, went on to become an associate producer in the 1960s under Broadway showmen like David Merrick. There's a lot of name dropping in this article, as you'll notice. Then in the 1970s, he became a theatrical agent whose clients included Miss Andrews, Jane Alexander, Angela Lansbury, Agnes DeMille, and Cheetah Rivera. (laughs) Not a podcast can go by. Not a podcast can go by. But it was backstage with titles like production stage manager that he first made his mark. If the producers and the directors were the kings of Broadway, the production stage managers were the princes said veteran producer Emanuel Eisenberg, who worked for Mr. Liff on Oliver. Just as an aside, I'll say that I also worked for Mr. Eisenberg for quite a number of years. In fact, he gave me my first uh, stage manager job on Broadway, and I got my equity card doing that. And he worked as an assistant for Mr. Liff on the original production of Oliver. Wow. The production stage manager's job involved being the eyes and ears of the producer and the director when the producers were showmen like Merrick and the directors were Broadway titans like Gower Champion and Joshua Logan. Mr. Liff was a towering presence in the theater, literally. A barrel-chested man with an enormous head. He'd be good in movies, (laughs) don't you think? He also had a voice that, at least in the good-natured imitations of friends, could project the absolute authority of a bass baritone. He could be the deep, reassuring source of calm in the frenzied, cutthroat world of Broadway where powerhouses like Merrick considered actors unruly children. He could move mountains, Miss Rivera said. I was never in any of those rooms where he probably roared like a lion, but I always felt as though my reputation would be okay as long as he handled me. He would say, don't worry, I'll take care of it, and he did. Mr. Liff was born on April 14th, 1919, in Boston. 1919 in Boston. That's that's older than some of the movies you're about to go see at Cinecon. He graduated from the Carnegie Institute of Technology, now Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, in 1939 with a degree in theater. Sounds familiar, doesn't it, Mm -hmm. Roscoe? Peter Webb, a playwright and director who interviewed Mr. Liff for a potential biography, said he worked for the producers Herman Levin and Melvin Douglas on a national tour of Call Me Mister, a musical that was about what Mr. Liff was at that moment in his life, a veteran. The troupe included, get this, Bob Fosse and Carl Reiner. Oh, good Lord. In Call Me Mister. Mr. Liff's first show as a stage manager was along Fifth Avenue, which ran 180 performances. It overlapped with the Admiral Broadway Review, a show on the new medium of television that originated from a converted theater in Columbus Circle. Mr. Liff was also the stage manager on that show at the same time, and it broadcast live on Friday evenings with Sid Caesar and Imogene Coca as the stars and Mel Brooks as one of the writers. Oh, good Lord. I told you this is like name drop heaven. He had a taxi waiting outside the studio so that he could dash to the theater where along Fifth Avenue was playing. 
Caesar, Coca, and the director Max Liebman, who created Admiral Broadway Review, went on to work on the groundbreaking Your Show of Shows in 1950. But by then, Mr. Liff was working as the stage manager on Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, starring Carol Channing, who later became a client of Mr. Liff's. In the 1960s, he was listed as associate producer when David Merrick introduced Woody Allen to Broadway as a playwright in Don't Drink the Water and as an actor in Play It Again, Sam. Mr. Liff held the same title on Promises, Promises, Cactus Flower, The Roar of the Grease Paint, and The Smell of the Crowd. Mr. Liff was a longtime member of the Tony Awards nominating committee and received a 2006 Tony for Excellence in Theater. The marquees of Broadway theaters will be dimmed in his memory tonight at 7.45 p.m. This was on Friday, August 14th, so this is just uh, two weeks ago. What Biff was known to do was figure out ways to cut through the problems and get the show on, Mr. Webb said. He could recognize the emotions of these people. He was an emotional guy himself, but he was able to detach himself from all the emotions and figure out a way to get the show on. Mr. Webb said Mr. Liff was rehearsing a road company of My Fair Lady one afternoon while a matinee performance of the same show was going on at the Mark Hellinger Theater several blocks away. Jerry Adler, the stage manager at that time, called from the Mark Hellinger at intermission and said that Rex Harrison was angry and he might not go on for Act Two. It seemed there had been a problem at the end of Act One. The chandeliers on the set were supposed to fly up as Mr. Harrison and Miss Andrews made their exit, but a stagehand made a mistake and sent the chandeliers crashing down. The stagehand quickly reversed course, but as the chandeliers rose, one of them took Mr. Harrison's toupee along for the ride. Fantastic. Mr. Liff left the road company rehearsal quickly and raced to the theater, Mr. Webb said. Mr. Liff, who usually worked to smooth things over, stormed into Mr. Harrison's dressing room and thundered that that stagehand would never again work in the theater. Rex said, Biff, old boy, wait, it's not that serious. Biff Liff, 96, Broadway manager and agent. Uh, he, was an, he was a wonderfully uh, gregarious individual when I knew him. Uh, again, as at that point, he was uh, an agent, a uh, well-respected and longtime agent with big star Well, roster. my God, you listed everyone in, in show New business York, in the at, last at 50 William years. Morris, so. And can I close with my very quick Rex Harrison anecdote? You may. That I told Colleen Gray, which she found most amusing. Rex Harrison, you know, the, My Fair Lady was a money pot for him, and he he was... How old was he? 62 or something when he did the movie. So he continued to tour in it for the next 20 years. The problem with that is there's a character in My Fair Lady that's his mother. So when Rex Harrison was 72, the conundrum was, who on earth do you find to play his mother? (laughs) Well, they got Kathleen Nesbitt. Kathleen Nesbitt was, was then well into her 90s. And she'd been around forever. And she was beginning to lose it. So they're playing at the Airy Crown Theater in Chicago. Rex Harrison, curtain comes up on a, you know, scene number nine. Rex Harrison walks on stage. Kathleen Nesbitt is sitting there and he goes, Hello, mother. What have you been up to today? I'm doing a play in Chicago with Rex Harrison. <laughs> is how she answered. <laughs> she did not. Yes. <laughs> how old was she at that time? She point? was 94. Oh, God. <laughs> Yes. That's brilliant. Yes. And she had a hand, final story. She had a handler to get her to and from the theater and back to the hotel. So one day she's on the elevator. The door opens. Rex Harrison gets on and she looks at him and says, 
I know you from somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) And with that scene. Yes. Well, I know you from somewhere as well. And I hope to know you uh, back here on our very next podcast, Roscoe. This has been a joy and uh, a lot of fun as usual. Yes. I'm sorry you'll miss our next one where we'll have Kurt Elling on as our next could, guest. Could you have him on before next Tuesday when I fly out of town? I don't think so. He's a busy guy and I, he only had a very, he's got a very small window of opportunity. We'll try. How about that? How about that? The best I can do is we'll try. Thanks, Roscoe. Thank you. And thank all of you out there for listening. Tune in again uh, to Talk Sports. Take care, everyone.